0: Summers in the U.S. Midwest can be brutal. Heat combined with humidity creates sticky, sweaty, sultry, not in a good way sultry, conditions that I have hated ever since I was a kid. And yet here I am instead of in Santa Fe, New Mexico or Dubois, Wyoming or some other place that would be much cooler, comfortable and more civilized. I can't imagine living here in the lower Missouri or Mississippi River Valleys in a time before air conditioning. Why my northern European ancestors chose to settle in this area, I'll never figure out. I guess it could be worse. They could have settled in a swamp in East Texas. Settlement patterns in the North America before air conditioning are a testament to what people would endure just to get a job or have their own piece of land. The good old days weren't always good. People who romanticize about simpler times in the 19th and 18th century, even the early 20th century and before, and think it would be so wonderful to live in those times. I can't put this any other way. You people are just plain stupid. Firstly, death came in a myriad of forms that we only rarely and remotely worry about today. Infections before antibiotics were absolutely deadly. You could die from an abscess tooth or a bad cold. And then there were the diseases, tuberculosis, diphtheria, typhus, smallpox, polio, measles, rubella, rabies, tetanus, cholera, and on and on, all of which today are either eliminated or successfully treatable. Think about that. When was the last time you heard of somebody dying from diphtheria? And those are just a few examples. There were millions of things out there that their only job was to kill you. There were also problems with preservation of food back then. Food went bad, and if you ate it when it went a little bad, it might kill you too. Then two things came to be, pasteurization and refrigeration. Both of these innovations were advanced because of Guess what? The production of beer. French scientist Louis Pasteur wanted to know why wine and beer seemed to spoil quicker in warmer weather. And he discovered bugs, what he called germs, and we today, we know them as protozoa and bacteria. He figured out that if you heat any liquid to about 55 degrees centigrade, and if you don't know how much that is, Google it, it would kill those germs that were present. We think of this today as mostly done with dairy products, but pasteurization of milk came long after it was first done to wine and beer. Now, the wine and beer snobs of the day thought, pasteurization, this is heresy. However, for 99% of the drinkers of the day, they couldn't tell the difference. But even with pasteurization, beer can still go bad, especially if it's left out in the light or if it gets hot and it's left there for a long time. German brewers of the late 1800s, they knew this. And with advances in transportation, they were looking for ways to ship their products to foreign markets and still keep it fresh. German scientist Carl von Linde invented the first commercially viable refrigerator in 1873 when Spaten Brewery contacted Linde along with Maschinenfabrik Augsburg to produce a refrigerator, first using ether as an coolant, and shortly after that, an improved ammonia gas system. From that time on, the world immediately became a better place. The expansion of brewing through many parts of the world, including the United States and Mexico, where lager beer was brewed in the late 1800s, would never have been possible without the innovations of pasteurization, refrigeration, and to a lesser extent, air conditioning. But even today, with the expansion of craft brewing into tropical and subtropical climates, It wouldn't happen without those things. And if we hadn't had all those things, it would have made our visit to a tap room in Minneapolis, Minnesota, on the hottest day of summer for them, very uncomfortable. The heat and humidity that day could have made everyone, including the nicest of people, very surly. This is episode number 10.
1: Welcome to the Brews Traveler, exploring the craft beer scene across North America, one craft brewery at a time. And now here's your host, the man who gets more MPP, that's miles per pint, than anybody, Alan Tatman.
0: Thank you, Jessica. And hello, everybody. Thank you for finding us out here in the podcasting universe and putting us in your ear for the next 50 minutes or so. Today, we're going to go one of the nicest places in America, Minnesota. And the incredibly misnamed but unforgettable Surly Brewing of Minneapolis, where we sat down and talked with head brewer Weston Shepard, and we met the rest of the crew at Surly, and we talked about what happens when craft brewing meets Minnesota Nice. We'll also talk with Tony Rehagen about the trend in packaging of aluminum cans over glass bottles, and how that came about and where that trend may be going. But first, I'm going to tell you the story of the founder and owner of Surly Brewing, who, in his role and how he helped change Minnesota state law, opening the way for craft breweries all across the land of 10,000 lakes. There's uh, actually a little more than 11,000 lakes in Minnesota, but who's counting? Let's head north to the Twin Cities and the land of sky blue waters waters let's go
1: and now we head on down the road with the bruised traveler where will the highway take us this week where will we lift a pint and who will we meet let's find out
0: minnesota nice a phrase often heard when talking about minnesotans It's described as the stereotypical behavior of people from that great state, and some would say by extension to others who live in the states in the upper Midwest, as being courteous, reserved, well-mannered, friendly, non-confrontational, with a tendency towards understatement, never braggadocious, and self-deprecation. And since I have taken a number of trips to Minnesota, I can say that that stereotype is a generalization. Because generally, it is true. So, when a craft brewery in this state is named surly, a term which Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines as an adjective, meaning menacing, threatening, unfriendly, impolite, or often in a bad mood, I knew it either had to be sarcasm or irony, or perhaps a bit of both. This is what I can tell you about the people at Surly Brewing. They are not. Instead, they were as hospitable and generous a group of folks that we have yet met in the short time that we have been traveling around with the Brews, Traveler, and Brewlissies. And that is really saying something since everybody we have met that has invited us into their brewery thus far have been much, much kinder than we could have ever hoped for. But with Surly, perhaps because of the brewery's name, when I first contacted Tiffany Jackson, their public relations director, maybe I was expecting, well, maybe there would be a bit of a rough edge, but not at all. These people at uh, Surly Brewing were anything but. And Tommy Baker and I were there at the end of June, and we were welcomed warmly on the hottest day that they had had in Minnesota that, thus far that summer. And while we were there, the staff and even the patrons uh, of the tap room, they couldn't have made our visit any more enjoyable. But besides being wonderful hosts with a state-of-the-art brewery in the heart of Minneapolis, certainly has something going on, but they've got something else. They made history. Coming out of Prohibition in 1933, every state developed different laws to oversee the production and distribution of alcohol. Lawmakers and a still fearful segment of the population who saw alcohol as immoral and sinful, they feared a return to pre-prohibition saloons, an institution that carried a reputation for drunkenness, gambling, prostitution, and violence. It was that reputation, actually, going back to the mid-19th century, that really was the impetus that sparked the temperance movement. Now, many of the saloons at the time were tied houses. That is, they were retail establishments that were tied to a particular brewer or distiller, and they only sold exclusively the product of that manufacturer. Now, moreover, the next thing that happened during the crime-filled days of Prohibition, organized crime got involved in, in all sorts of drinking establishments during the Roaring Twenties. So, ending the Tide House evil and the influence of gangsters became a very important legislative goal for most states. This saw Congress and most of the state legislature pass laws immediately after prohibition, which limited or completely prohibited cross-ownership between manufacturers and retailers. These laws effectively ended all tied houses, and they also passed laws which severely limited the amount amount of on-premise advertising and assistance that alcohol producers could provide To these retailers. So while even today, Coca-Cola or Frito-Lay in most states, they can pay a restaurant chain to become the exclusive soft drink or chip supplier to that chain, brewers and distillers still cannot pay a restaurant chain or a bar or anybody to be that institution's exclusive beer supplier. And that's the way the law pretty much still stands across the country. What developed out of this period is what is known as the three-tier system of alcohol sales and distribution. Manufacturers at the top tier, they had to sell to licensed distributors. That would be the second tier, who then sold the product to retailers, the bottom tier, that is taverns, saloons, bars, pubs, restaurants, liquor stores, liquor departments, grocery stores, wherever. The three-tier system also monitored taxation of product to make certain that illicitly produced product, moonshiners, bootleggers, and so on, would not be able to sell to premises without a tax being collected on the alcohol. And that is the law, pretty much the way most liquor is sold today in the United States. But some things happened. Home brewing, which had been outlawed with the passing of Prohibition in 1920, was for some reason not repealed in 1933 with the rest of Prohibition, probably because of the lobbying efforts of the brewing industry. But on October 14th of 1979, the brewing of beer at home without being subject to taxation went into effect. Now, this was the genesis of the craft beer movement. Home brewers over the years they perfected their craft and some of the beer was good, so a lot of it was bad, but that's what happens when you're in a learning curve. But then they wanted to do something else. They wanted to go larger. They wanted to brew beer on a larger scale and sell their product to the public. The microbrewery and brew pubs epoch had begun. Some states readily worked with small brewers to encourage the development of microbreweries, brewpubs, to encourage employment and commerce. And laws skirting the three-tier system were put into place, allowing brewers to sell their product on premises without going through a distributor. And this was the impetus for tap rooms and brewpubs. But in a number of states, the legislators were reluctant to change among the many states that prohibited on-premise sales by microbreweries was Minnesota. Omar Ansari, who founded Surly Brewing in 2007, was perplexed by a Prohibition-era law that prevented production breweries from selling their beer on-site. Omar had successfully been distributing his beer through the three-tier system, but he wanted to be able to offer a social experience to those who toured his brewery and beyond just giving them, say, a sample at the end of the tour. So he worked with the Minnesota lawmakers in St. Paul and with the help of a vocal, passionate, surly nation arising to support him, the laws were changed. The legislation was dubbed the Surly Bill because of Omar's passionate support of the change, passed on May 24, 2011, and then A couple of years later, Surly broke ground on a new multi-million dollar destination brewery in October of 2013, located in the Minneapolis Prospect Park neighborhood. And in the wake of the new law, came new breweries and tap rooms popping up all over Minnesota. Surly Brewing and Omar Ansari changed the landscape for craft brewers in the state of Minnesota. And that can't be denied. And we visited them on a hot Friday afternoon at the end of June, where we sat down in their fantastic facility with head brewer, Weston Shepard. And here it is, folks, your interview of the week. Everybody. we're at Surly Brewing in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we're here in the control room of the brewery with Weston Shepard, the lead brewer here at the Minneapolis Brewery. And Weston, thanks so much for having the Brews Traveler yep, uh, as absolutely. a guest here in the Twin Cities. <laughs> no no problem. Welcome. You've got a nice dark beer here. I haven't even tasted this yet. What? Uh, tell us a little bit about this.
2: Uh, so this beer is called Grindcore um, It's named after a, a style of, of heavy metal music And it is a uh, nitro milk stout with
0: uh, espresso So nitro espresso milk stout Well, <laughs> any of our listeners already know I'm going to love this <laughs> Okay, well cheers All right, Cheers, yeah, uh, pick the right one to start with Oh yeah so this is our—it's
2: um, our year-round nitro option. Um, so we've always got it on here at the tap room, um, and a, I think limited release outside the tap room. Um, yeah, so you know,
0: only places that that have a nitro right. um, tap. Type system. Okay. By the way, everybody, if you do hear some strange noises, we, are, as I said, we are in the control room. There are different parts of engineering that go off from time to time, so we'll we'll just get through it. All right, Weston. How much? How long have you been here now with Surly? Uh, I've been at Surly for four years. This summer. What's your background? Where are you from? How did you get involved in craft brewing, etc.? And where was your training? And um, so I grew up in
2: in Maine, um, out on the East Coast. I got. Into brewing, craft brewing, and brewing in general um, as a home brewer, like I think a lot of people in the industry have. I was living in Vermont at the time and uh, brewing in, in the basement, and I was making some hard ciders as well. There was a cidery that opened up just down the street and went over one day and, and said, Are you guys looking for help? I'd, I'd love to intern. Uh, so that's I got my start uh, making hard cider. Uh, that company is called Citizen Cider. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're located in Burlington, Vermont. They distribute a little bit in Chicago, but they're mostly a, a Northeast um, brand. So I was the lead cider maker there for a few years. And then the woman who's now my wife, uh, is a, she was a Midwest gal. She grew up in Wisconsin. And uh, we decided to move to be a little closer to her family. Came to, to Minneapolis. Not quite sight unseen, but um, neither of us had jobs and, you know, weren't quite sure how, how things were going to go once we landed. Uh, and Surly took a gamble on me, um, on my, you know, production experience and, and my knowledge um, of, of beer and brewing. And so I started out working in the cellar at the Brooklyn Center facility about 25 minutes away from here. And became a brewer there and then moved over here, uh, brewed over here for uh, a little bit, and now I'm the the lead brewer at this facility. And
0: how long has this facility been open?
2: This facility was commissioned in December of
0: 2014. So we are um, going on four years. Three and a half years, yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the founders, Omar uh, Ansari and Todd Hogg. Yep. Um, so
2: Omar certainly was, was Omar's plan. It was his idea. Um, he also started out as a home brewer. You know, there, there weren't a lot of craft beers, um, around and he was, he was seeking out craft beers, um, couldn't find a lot. So he decided to to make his own as a home brewer and, and the response was positive, um, and his parents happened to own a, a factory in Brooklyn Center um, that made abrasive discs, like grinding discs. Right. Um, it was the Sparky Abrasives Factory, and he talked his dad into donating, basically, or, or, or selling part of the, the factory space to Omar to start his brewery. Um, and then Omar hired the 1st Surly Brewing's first hire was was Todd Hauck, um who was a local— he was a local local brewer. He worked at a brew pub called Rock Bottom, um, mm-hmm. and he and Omar kind of connected at a, a conference, a craft beer conference, and um, realized that they were both interested in, in starting their own brewery. And, and so that's you know
0: kind of a, a legendary partnership now. Are they still involved? In the day-to-day operations?
2: Yep. Uh, so Todd actually moved on about two years ago, um, and he now works uh for Three Floyds uh doing oh, sure. special yeah. projects for them. Um uh, Omar is, is still involved day-to-day. You know, he's a um he's a familiar face to, you know, people in the restaurant side back here, um, you know, he's he's definitely um hardest working hardest working guy in the brewery. Well,
0: not only that, not only did he found Surly, but He changed law.
2: Yeah, um, that is that's true. I mean, Omar and and Surly are are responsible in no small part for the the craft boom in Minneapolis, um, because it used to be uh, you used to not be allowed to have a own a brewery and have a tap room where you could serve pints. Um, so you couldn't sell anything to go and you couldn't serve pints, you could only do samples, um, like, you know, with a tour or something like that, so Omar um, went to the legislator, legislature, and it, it took a few years, but he um, you know, with, with some allies um, in St. Paul um, he was able to, to push through what, what was nicknamed the Surly Bill uh, that allowed breweries to have tap rooms that they could serve pints out of, and so as soon as that law went into place, um, you know we saw. There's, it seems like every month now we've got one or two breweries opening around town. Right. Yeah.
0: Not just around town, but statewide. Well, statewide, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, Minnesota is like, it's got a vibrant craft brew scene going on. Yeah, it's, um... And they really kind of all owe it to Omar I'm sorry. Yeah, you, you know, I mean,
2: we, not to take anything away from the, the quality of the beer or, or, you know, the hardworking founders of those breweries, but, um... The landscape was definitely changed with the Surly Bill because it's it's a it's a big deal for a small company to be able to sell. You know, when you sell out of your own tap room, you don't need to um, you don't have to go through a big distributor. You don't have to. You know, I mean, there are a lot of breweries that in town that are only selling out of their own tap room, mm-hmm. um, and so that's you know increased the diversity um, and and the quality of the the beer
0: in Minnesota dramatically. I am very curious, the name, where did Surly Brewing come from?
2: Uh, so it, it kind of ties into the story I, I was telling you earlier about Omar looking for craft beer. Um, the legend is that he was, um, or the story I've heard is that he was in California, I think it was at the, um, at the conference where he met Todd. And he went into a, a bar uh, and was looking for local craft beer, and there weren't, really any good options um, and so he, he said he was feeling surly and, and that kind of uh, stuck and that that word I think um, has come to de- define our, our brand a little bit um, you know we a little bit edgy you know our beers are oftentimes they're you know we like to push the boundaries they're a little hoppier than normal or a little more bitter than normal or um, you know a little higher alcohol and so uh, you know it's it's the beers you want to drink when you're grumpy. How big
0: is this facility? And you have another brewing facility as well, don't you?
2: We do. So we still have the original brewery in Brooklyn Center in the Abrasis factory. So it didn't take, I think it took uh, maybe a year before that entire factory was, um, or the bulk of that factory was turned into a brewery, um, because we found there was there was a demand for craft beer in uh, in the Twin Cities and people responded well. We have that facility open, and, and that kind of serves as not only R&D, but also it allows us to, to make a, a wide variety of beers. Um, this facility here um, is much bigger, um, but we also, the way our system is set up, it's it's better for brewing um, more of less brands. Um, okay. And so Larger we, quantities. Yeah, larger quantities. Um, So we do a lot of smaller batch experimental and and kind of boundary pushing stuff at the Brooklyn Center
0: Brewery. And then here we do our our flagship brands. So how many barrels is Surly producing on an annual basis? Uh, So last year
2: we were just under 100,000 barrels. This year we're shooting, so that was 2017, 2018, where we're shooting to be, you know, just north of 100,000. So We are, according to the um, Brewer's Association list,
0: we're 39th among independent craft and Uh 49th among all breweries in the country. So that's quite an achievement. And and again, remind me, when did Omar and 2007 was when the brewery opened. So So in 11 years.
2: It's been rapid. It's been rapid growth every year for us. How many different types of beer
0: did Surly produce last year?
2: I don't know the exact number. What I do know is that in our tap room here, uh, at any given time, we've got at least 20 different beers on tap, um, you know, up to 30 plus. We have the luxury of, um, and, and having this tap room that's, that's busy all the time with people kind of hungry for something new and different, um, that we we brew a lot of you know, more than any other brewery I know, we brew a lot of different beers. Um, you know, we're always experimenting, we're always trying new things, um, and then also, you know, kind of refining styles and putting different twists
0: on things. Outside of Minnesota, what other states are you distributing it?
2: We are distributed um, North and South Dakota, Wisconsin, Iowa. Uh, so those are our Minnesota neighbors. We're in Illinois. Uh, we're in Nebraska, we're in Colorado, and that's it for the U.S. as, mm-hmm.
0: as far as I know, and then we're also in um, Canada as well. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Your portfolio here, Weston, um, you know, kind of give me an idea, I mean, what, what is your philosophy towards brewing here at mm-hmm. Surly, and out of that, what, what, what are your flagships that come out of that philosophy?
2: Yeah, so I, you know, I was talking about the diversity of brands that we have, and um, different beers. We, uh, you know, most of those are draft only, uh, and they're here in the tap room and, and maybe limited release. Um, our our flagship brands that are that you can find in cans in all our markets um, are Furious. So that's uh, that's right. you know the they call it the beer that started it all. Um, that you know that's our IPA. Um, and then we've got Hell, uh, which is our Hellas lager. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, Extra Citra, which is our pale ale, um, Session pale ale. We have Bender, which is a brown ale. That's another one of the original, um, you know, original beers that Surly started with. Uh, Cynic is a Belgian saison, uh, And... Uh, what am I don't I'm Coffee Bender uh, is another uh, year-round addition. And then Axeman, um, which is our, uh, that's our kind of juicy
0: IPA what most people are calling a new england style
2: it was no we don't call it a new england style it's got that flavor profile um or some of that flavor profile we call it a west coast style ipa um, it has more bitterness than okay. new england style ipa but it does have citron mosaic hops and that kind of juicy the, full-bodied yep. right. uh, character but it's the bitterness is a little higher and and it's not you know it's it doesn't look like a milkshake um, uh-huh. So, and we've been brewing that one. Uh, that was named after Todd Haug, who's the, the old head brewer. He was the, the ax man. Um, and we've been brewing that for, uh, yeah, almost three years now. So, uh, you know, kind of before the, the hazy IPA thing took off. So is, is uh, Furious your number one seller? Furious is the number one seller, yeah. yeah. I drink a lot of Furious. I, I drink it every day. It's part yeah. of my job. And then I go home and, and I'll drink another one. I, I never get tired of
0: that beer, so... That says something. It's a cl- It's a classic. It is. Yeah. Okay, so you've been here four years now. What was the worst day for you personally at Surly Brewing?
2: A bad day. A bad day working for a brewery is is better than a bad day working other places. But that being said, this this kind of work lends itself to, to long days. And, yeah. Um. So I, uh, the worst day that I've ever had um, was probably. I think it was in the first year, first or second year I ever worked for Surly, and um, I was brewing Overrated, um, which is another one of our our year-round beers. It's a a West Coast-style IPA, kind of with a classic um, dry hop Centennial Chinook Amarillo, or uh, Centennial Chinook Cascade. Um, So I I was brewing uh, Bender, which is our brown ale first, and then moving to Overrated. And I um, I put the chocolate malt into the bender. I put it in last, um, and so some of that chocolate malt was still in the system when we brewed the overrated. So uh, it was actually the, the brewer took over from me on that shift. I was still at the brewery, but um, he pulled a sample out of the work kettle, and it was brown. Our um, you know our, our beautiful pale uh, crisp. West Coast IPA was um, you know, the color of a brown ale and so that that word unfortunately went down the drain um, you know that's as a, as a brewer that's that's a tough tough thing uh, you know everyone
0: makes mistakes I was, but I was over you'd say and we tasted it <laughs> and it was wonderful <laughs> and that became our new yeah no that would have been a good day um, <laughs> it was a bad day yeah I can understand what was your best day
2: I think that's a tougher question. We have a lot of good days here. <laughs> um, every year we do uh, Darkness Day, which is um, it's a festival we, we hold um, to release our Russian Imperial Stout called Darkness. Right. Um, and we've done that at the Brooklyn Center Brewery mm-hmm. a lot of years now. I'm not quite sure when it started, but um, up until last year. So last year was the last one at the Brooklyn Center Brewery just because we getting bigger and bigger each year and um we kind of outgrew that space a little bit and we wanted to be able to you know have more people come and enjoy and also not um upset our, our neighbors who were gracious enough to let us hold that party for so many years running but my my first darkness day as a surly employee was was a pretty cool experience just because we have uh such a devoted fan base and you know i've talked about how minnesota is such a great craft beer state um Surly's got a, a lot of fans, and there are just a lot of fans of, of beer in general, and, and they flock to the brewery for that beer, and and they camp out the night before, and you you can do what they call walk the line, where there are all these people camped out, and they're grilling, and they'll you know give you some whatever some ribs they've been smoking and then let you try their home brew that they're brewing or that people do bottle shares and so it's kind of like I mean I would describe it as the as the ultimate sort of craft beer experience it's like all the things that you love about the industry it's it's like really nice really passionate people um really good beer really diverse beer um you know, I- inspiring and, and fun environment. You know, it's a party. Right. It's, it's a fun party. Proud to to work for a company that um, you know people care about so much that they, right. they line up at 3 a.m. and camp out in the rain to
0: um, you know to be able to, able to participate in. What has been the most surprising thing about this industry to you? I think what surprised me the most
2: is how fast everything has changed and the and the growth. I mean that's. Um, maybe the, the obvious answer But uh, like back when I was homebrewing You know at the end of college um, 2008, 2009 uh, my, my dad bought me my first homebrew set Because um, he was a homebrewer in the 80s um, 80s and 90s And you gave people uh, an IPA uh, And you know that wasn't that long ago IPAs existed But if I gave them a homebrew IPA Or um, you know like a Summit IPA Or something like that you know, 90% of people would have said, said this is too bitter, I, I can't drink this. Craft beer is still a small portion of all the beer sales in the country. Everyone's tried an IPA now, and you've got just legions and legions of hopheads that want things right. more bitter and more hopped, and that's an, it's an extreme, you know, especially the way they're being brewed now, IPAs are like an, an extreme taste, and it's an acquired taste, and, you know, I, I think people have, have really old and young have really um, bought into it and see the well, see the benefit for having you know, having a diversity right. of flavor and, yeah. and um, like a lot of flavor in your beer. I had people when I um, when I quit my job I was working at the University of Vermont I quit my job to work full time at the cidery. People told me you know, that's that's a mistake this whole thing, uh, you know, cider and craft beer. They said, you know it's, it's a flash in the pan or it's, a, it's a, a trend or a yeah. uh, fad you know, I think that's, I think we've proven that false.
0: Yeah. What do you see as challenges coming down the road for the craft brewers?
2: You know, I think there are a lot of challenges. Um, I, I think we're out of the the honeymoon phase and, and the novelty phase where people will, will drink craft beer because it's, it's craft beer. Right. Um, you know, because... It's different. Consumers are—they're uh, getting savvier and right. demand more. For a brewery like Surly, our our challenge is—we want to distribute in Missouri and we want to distribute in you know as, as far as we can get. Um, but beer is also a, a fresh product uh, that that should be consumed fresh, especially especially IPAs and um, hot poured beers, which are what we brew a lot of and. So we want to make sure that when our beer gets into the hands of a consumer, that it tastes the way it tastes to us right now, drinking right. it at the brewery. Right. So that's um, that's one big challenge, and, and I think we'll lose, I think we'll lose people, um, I think we'll lose consumers if, if they're drinking beer that you know, someone you say, oh, Furious is a is a fantastic. Yeah. That was a big one. (laughs) That was a big one. That means that's done. Okay. They'll say, uh, you'll say, Furious is a fantastic beer, and they go to their liquor store and they buy it, um, and it's not fantastic, you know, then they might be hesitant to to buy, um, you know, our brand or or any craft beer in the future. So I think there's that, and I think, you know, big beer um, is, I think they're taking notice and they're concerned that they're losing market share. And we see a lot of acquisitions. Um, right.
0: And so I think the other. How, how do you feel about that? A lot of times, these acquisitions, these breweries, you know, they're, they're just being made an offer that's too good to refuse. Yeah. It's like free agents in sports. <laughs> if the team is going to pay you that kind of money to come play for them, you can't say no to that.
2: Yeah, it's it's true. And for the owners, like, you know, for a guy like Omar, I, I don't think he'll ever. Um, sell I, I almost know he won't right. ever do that but he has there's a lot of blood sweat and tears that he's put
0: into sure. this business <laughs> it's going off now. We we, we, we no no don't yeah, worry well, about it. I just we, you know what? I'm gonna add. I'm gonna leave this in. I'm gonna leave. Idea. Hey, yeah. folks, this is what it's like when you're in a working brewery. Yeah. You know, we're not sitting in a corporate office somewhere in downtown Minneapolis. We're yeah. right here in the in the brewer's room, uh, and this is what it's like. Back to Omar, and you know these these. I mean, these guys. I don't think they can. A lot of times they're being all, the kind of the money they're being offered yeah. they can't say no
2: well so what i was going to say about omar is you know he's he works hard right and he's got a family and mm-hmm. um you know I, I can see it being tempting for some of these owners to you know they, they've poured their their heart and soul into right. these places and, and their time it'd be nice to to get a reward for that and, right. and to be able to go you know move towards maybe living a, a a little right. more relaxed life, um, but you asked what I, f- I f- how I feel about the acquisitions, and um, you know I-, I think that if we lose if craft beer loses its independence, um, then I think we run the risk of beer becoming mm. uniform and, and watered down homogenized. again, homogenized, yeah. um, and and commoditized, and so that's that's a risk. Um, And then I think the other thing is craft beer has been a huge—we talked about this early bill. Craft breweries and all the independent breweries in Minnesota have been a huge boon to the economy. Um, And I think, by and large, I think labor is is treated better at at craft breweries. Um, I think that—I think people uh, give—the craft beer, you know, gives back more— to to Agreed. a community and, and people have, you know, like in in-kind donations and direct donations and in labor and, and that kind of thing. But also people have a a gathering spot, um, a sense of community, a sense of community that's that's locally owned. And so I think you know it's it's kind of unquantifiable what um, how all the the craft beer has changed. Um, you know this community around here, and, and I used to live in Burlington, right. uh, you know. It's, change the state of Vermont, and so I, I think it's, um, you know, there, there are huge positives that come from, um, you know, politicians always say that small businesses are the, the drivers of the economy, and, um, and that's true. You know, they drive employment and... Um, innovation. Innovation. Yeah, that's another huge thing. So I don't, um, you know, if someone wants to sell I don't fault them um, for wanting a a payoff for all their hard work. Um, But I also,
0: you know, I I do have admiration and appreciation for the places that are going to stay independent. Anything that Surly's got coming down the line that their fans can look forward to?
2: Yeah, I mean, we always have a million balls in the air. Um, In terms of... In terms of beer, um, we, new beer, we, we just started a new series called the BC Small Batch Series, and, and that's, uh, named for the Brooklyn Center Brewery, um, and so we're doing a lot of, uh, small batch experimental stuff, but, um, what's different is we're putting it in cans, um, so, you know, it, it. People who aren't coming in the tap room can can try it. So sure, um, that's cool. We released uh, Inside the Upside Down, which was a collaboration with Jay Wakefield Brewing right. uh, in Miami, and that was a, a fruited kettle sour um, mm-hmm. imperial kettle kettle sour that was just fantastic. Um, we also have Zest Crazed, which is a, a citrus uh, IPA with um, some citrus zest in it. We're releasing. We're really excited actually to release uh, rosé. Which
0: is um, we've got a little bit of we that have here. Some, yeah, I right want to taste that before we'll, we get we'll, done. Yeah, here. Um, we'll
2: crack one open.
0: Yeah, we've got a couple more beers here that we got to try before we get out of here. So tell me about rosé here.
2: So rosé is um, we've done a couple takes on uh, like wine beers, uh, you know, sort of wine hybrid beers, and so this uh, is our sort of ode to uh, rosé wine, which a lot of the brewers around here are are very fond of, especially in the summer. Um, So it has uh, some fruit in it um, for for color and the kind of the sort of strawberry um, aromatics that you get on a rosé. What kind of fruit? Uh,
0: It has black currants and strawberry puree. Nice. What was that? Black currants and
1: strawberry? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, That's Tiffany Jackson, everybody. She's worth the marketing and public relations department here. So, hi, Tiffany. <laughs> Let me.
2: And so then it also has that, um, you know, yeah. it has like a really nice effervescence. Um, so this it's a fantastic summer beer, and it's actually a, a lager base. Um, which So there are other breweries that are doing a... Uh, you know, wine, using grape must and, and that kind of thing. Yep. This is, um, you yep. know, the, the way we did this, it's, it's sort of like a deconstructed rosé. Right. So we, we, you know, we took the qualities that we like about rosé and then recreated them in a beer uh, form. And so I think it's it's been incredibly popular in the tap room, and it's um, it's one of my favorite beers this summer. It's, it's nice.
0: Really it's refreshing. a great summertime drink. Yeah. We have one more beer here that we should not uh, let go to waste. Uh, what do we have here? This is
2: uh, Todd the Axeman. Um, so this is our, uh, it's a West Coast style IPA with those juicy uh, citron mosaic hops. It gets a double dry hop. Um, and its we brew it with a lot of Golden Promise malt. Cheers. Cheers. Which is, is pretty unique for IPAs. We um, oh, really yeah. love Golden yeah, Promise. Yeah, it's real juicy.
0: A lot of citrus. Yeah. yeah. Whereas this has got more of the, the, the resin, yep. the fury says more this has more of the citrus so, yeah different style of hops
2: different style of hops different um you know a little bit different process but um yeah it, it's it's sort of two uh it's kind of the old and the new
0: um right. ipas nice yeah before we get out of here i'd like to end these interviews with five questions the lightning round and uh, Tiffany, you're, you're more than welcome to uh, jump in on this if you feel like might have an answer. Being that this is Surly Brewing, I'm looking at uh, grumpy people. All right. So, from the world of puppets, Oscar the Grouch or those two guys sitting in the balcony of the Muppet Show? Absolutely the, the Muppet Show. Guys. Oh. <laughs> from 70s TV, Archie Bunker or George Jefferson?
2: <laughs> uh, or you say, might be too it's, young It's a little before my time
0: I'm, I'm more familiar with George Jefferson Okay role or Archie Bunker. Oh, uh, see, he's there's no guy. right or wrong questions in the lightning <laughs> round or answers I should say. From the movie Grumpy Old Men set here in Minnesota, Walter Matthau or Jack Lemmon.
2: That's <laughs> also before my time. I'll let Tiffany.
0: I'll let, oh, Tiffany, my God. I'll let Wal- Tiffany take Walter that.
3: Mathau,
0: for sure. <laughs> I, well, I've never seen it. All right, he's not from the Midwest. That is That's true. True. okay. Midwest so Weston, adopted Weston adopted you home. get you get a pass on that one, all right? Once you hit five, they
1: make you watch Grumpy
0: Around here, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, anywhere in the Midwest you watch i grew up around those guys. Anyway. Uh from Christmas, Ebenezer Scrooge or the Grinch? Scrooge, I think is he's the classic, yeah. Right. And from the world of contemporary comedy, Lewis Black or Larry David? Uh Lewis Black. Absolutely. What do you think, (laughs) Tiffany? I I agree All right, okay. That's it. Five for five. Thanks, Weston (laughs) Shepard. It's great. Tiffany Jackson, thanks, guys. And Surly Brewing, thank you very much for having the Brews Traveler at your your facilities. And one last time. Cheers. Cheers. And that's it. Again, thanks to Weston for taking some time out of his very busy Friday at the brewery. And another thank you especially to Tiffany Jackson for setting the whole thing up. I can promise you that the next time that I am up north, I will most certainly stop in at Surly Brewing. Tom uh, shot a lot of video footage, and he's working on a video of our trip to Minnesota, including Surly and uh, Bent Paddle, and we hope to have that finished in the very near future, and we'll let you know when you can see that. Surly's Minneapolis Beer Hall, adjacent to the main production brewery, is located at 520 Malcolm Avenue Southeast in Prospect Park neighborhood of downtown Minneapolis. Beer halls open Sunday through Thursday, 11 to 11, and Friday and Saturday, 11 to midnight. The Beer Hall has daily tours, as well as t- more than 24 daily rotating taps. Besides pizzeria, the main floor of the Beer Hall has an extensive menu of delicious Foods. There's also an events room available for large groups and parties. And to learn more about Surly Brewing, check out their website at surlybrewing.com. Hey! Ah, da 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 da
1: yeah.
0: ah, Hey! Scale
1: What's the rumpus? Now it's time for What's the Rumpus with Tony. What's going on in the world of craft brewing?
0: And Tony Rehagan is with us. How you doing, Tony? Doing well, Alan. How are you? I'm doing great. I had a lovely Sunday with the Lee What did what, you guys do this weekend? Anything special?
3: Uh, we just got back uh, literally like a couple hours ago from Des Moines. We went up to uh, pick up our kids that were staying with my wife's uh, my wife's family who live in Des Moines. She's right. from Iowa. Yeah. yeah, but it was good. It was
0: good. We just had kind of a quick trip up there. But, uh, yeah, it's always good to get to Iowa. Good beer country. Yeah, in Iowa, there's a lot of great breweries. We're going to be up in Waterloo this weekend. And... Uh, uh, Going to hope to uh, sit down with the owner and brewmaster there at Single Speed Brewing. Uh, we, we're still working out the details.
3: That sounds awesome. Yeah, we got to. Uh, yeah, I know you went to Exile, which is great. Uh, right. But uh, one of my favorite breweries in Des Moines is uh, Confluence, and they have a brewery out there uh, by Gray's Lake, just uh, just outside of downtown. Yeah. And the cool thing was, we went, and uh, it was. I go periodically, like once every few months. And the problem with them was is that they only did growlers. That's the only way you can get their. And you know, like when you get a growler, right? You, you love it, but you get this big thing. Of, especially if you're drinking anything with any kind of potency, right? Like you got to, if you want the freshness, you better do it all in one shot, <laughs> and, yes. and you can't take it all the way home either, which sucks. So, uh, but last it was last summer I got there, and I noticed that a whole wall in the local grocery store had confluence cans um, and just tall boys. And I was I did a dance up and down the aisle and I loaded up um, and and took it home with me because I was just thrilled to see, see the cans. And the the cool thing about it is, is like, uh, and you know how it is like, all you'd see craft beer in is is the brown bottles. Right. that was that's what you'd see. That's what you see. But uh, I think it was uh like you sometimes like Oscar Blues, uh the, like Dale's Pale Ale and his his kind out of Colorado. They were doing canning back in like 2002. But that was a real rarity. Right, because cans had kind of a stigma to them. You know, like people didn't like didn't like the cans. They
0: well, not, it goes it back was craftier. to craftier. Right, and it goes back to their what their parents always said. You know, I mean, back to an old day when when I was a kid drinking. You know, I was like bottles were always better because canned beer tasted metallic which was right which was horse hockey but right. uh, yeah even even when i was a, a kid in the 70s they had it lined even back then so yeah right yeah well and that's the
3: cool thing so i kind of got me interested in it so i, I looked up the numbers because because like you know when you're seeing all these beers now most of them i mean it seems like most of them are canned and that's not actually that's not the truth it's just the perception but um in 2017 uh basically the Brewers Association came out with some data that said uh, during that year uh, 30, basically cans represented 30.9% of the package volume uh, in 2017. Um, And that's up from 28.5% in 2016. So it's actually still a pretty vast minority compared to bottles, but uh, there's an uptick.
0: Yeah, the uh, perception would be different. I'm seeing more cans than bottles or at least I thought, but perhaps uh, perhaps I'm not.
3: Right, and it's gotten to the point where I almost prefer it because I was actually shopping with my sister-in-law a little bit and she was getting some beer for her boyfriend and she was like well I think he just likes bottles and I was like listen I mean if, if, if you, there's certain beers that you're just not going to be able to get in the bottle and, and I've, I've become a proponent of cans uh, I know in uh, Indianapolis where I used to live they now have a can festival just for just for craft brewers who, who can um, and there you know there, there's several reasons I think that are really good reasons why you know people support the cans and bre- why brewers support the cans right. and reasons and I found American craft. Beer com enumerated them pretty well uh, number one was is convenience uh, you know basically like a case of bottles weighs about 33 pounds um, but a case of cans weighs about 19 pounds that, that not only mean that, that only means they're easier for consumers to carry and they're loaded into their trunks absolutely yeah it's cheaper for manufacturers and distributors to ship. Uh, the one that my favorite, uh, my my big reason for boosting cans is freshness. Um, you know, people are afraid of cold beer getting warm, but you and I know, like, and most people by now know that the real enemies are light and air. That, right. That's 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 what kills your beer. And cans are opaque and they're sealed tighter. I mean, that's just the end of the story. Like, they're just fresher. Um, we talk about it all the time, and another reason is sustainability. Uh, they're easier to recycle. Cans can be used and recycled, and back on the shelf in 60 days is what uh, what I had read. Um, and because they're lighter to ship, they leave a smaller carbon footprint. You know, they're they just don't the tonnage is not as much. Right. Another reason is, and you, you definitely see this is you get improved can technology. Um, you just have better cans, like newly designed pouring lips that you know can accentuate the aromatics, uh, the smell of your beer. Urban Chestnut out of St. Louis has those. full- pop tops now where the entire thing basically turns those tall boys into a, a, a drinking glass where you can get the you can get the nose and it's much easier to drink and you know crowlers have kind of nudged their way into the into the bulk market instead of a growler you can get a crowler for the freshness and and you're already seeing some uh resealable cans uh, and i think they're still working on that because it's not quite right but once once they figure that out i mean then that's that's a huge advantage over bottles which, right just don't retain it. It's becoming smart business. Uh, generally, cans are cheaper to buy. At least they have been, and, and we'll come back to that. Um, but canning lines take up less space. There, there's lower overhead. Uh, they tend to be easier to manage. No broken glass. There's a you know there's a jam up. Um, they stack easily, and yeah, you, know, you and I know when we well, go yeah. into these in these breweries. Like, right. I mean, you're going to see pallets, of what? nice neatly stacked cans. Right?
0: Where were we at four hands? And they was it oh, four yeah. hands? And the he guy said, "Yeah." First time we started canning, <laughs> the first day, somebody backed into one of these pallets, and you know it went spilling everywhere. But it was better than if it had been a pallet of bottles. So,
3: oh yeah, yeah. absolutely, <laughs> yeah. All the all the mess for sure. No, I need mean, yeah. They just neatly stack if you're if you're a neat freak. That's just the way to do it. There's mo- there's room for more artwork on a can you know that's becoming the biggest way to separate yourself on the shelf is to you know is to have artwork rather than just a little label around the big brown bottle that blends in with all the other brown bottles cans can kind of be a bigger canvas so to speak and then uh and the other thing is uh the changing image and you and i were talking about that you know they don't have the stigma that they used to they're not as uncool plus the big thing is you can take them places you can take them to sporting events they won't shatter at your cookout or your tailgate uh if you're, if you're canoeing which with one of the floor fishing they'll float if you tip or if you dump it like right. you know the, the, the bottles are going you know they're but, sink yeah yeah exactly so and, and you can also like you can stuff more cans in your cooler back to the efficiency thing or if you like to load up you know your cargo pants or whatever they, they fit much easier <laughs> than like say your bottles if you're trying to sneak them in somewhere right As some of my friends always did uh, <laughs>
0: i never did that No, never, never. Uh, You know, yeah, yeah, and another thing about, you know, you're talking about the cans and, you know, they're cheaper to make. Uh, There's a new trend, and uh, Kat Walensky with At Beer Affair on Twitter, she just tweeted today that the new uh, trend is going to be 19 and a half Ounce, what they're calling stovepipe cans, and uh, yeah, and that'll save them some money too. Because I mean, it's easier to make one can that's a little bit taller when you consider putting in the top and sealing it and everything than it is. Yeah, than it is two twelves. Yeah, and the and the and the tall boys. I see a lot of people going to that. Surly, who I talked about this week, almost. 100% hundred percent of their packaging is four packs in sixteen mm-hmm. ounce uh, in sixteen ounce cans.
3: Absolutely, yeah, no, it, it, you're seeing it all it, all over the place for sure. Uh, and four packs are, are huge. And, and you know, and I was looking. There are still are some like perceived downsides and some other downsides, but they're pretty easily dispelled. I, I was looking. Uh, the Daily Beast had something about the downsides, but they they combated it pretty well. One thing was what you talked about, the metallic taste, and it's like you said, it's not coming. That's not coming from the inside. They're, the, the inside is lined. Um, um, so if, if you are getting metallic taste, it's just coming from the lip of the can. Exactly. I mean, all you have to do is just pour, pour the damn thing in a
0: glass. Pour it in a glass, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, the, and that lining is actually the lining of cans traditionally has kind of had a little bit of controversy. It's it's lined with BPA or it's uh, I'm going to screw this up bisphenol A. Um, and that, that has been pegged as an endocrine disruptor Like it affects your hormone levels uh, But Even the studies that have shown that So show that it's only in infants uh, The FDA banned uh, use of BPA in baby bottles But that's only when the plastic gets hot Which, I mean, should not happen to your beer right? And the, and the EPA basically said It's not a health concern So like, it's, it's, it's kind of debated And they're also coming up with some substitutes for it So it's a very minimal thing Like if that's what you're complaining about You need to... You, there, there are other health things you need to watch out for. <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing is uh, aluminum production creates more pollution and takes more energy than glass, which is, which is true. But you can recycle... Aluminum over and over, and the recycling takes less energy than right. that glass, so it kind of balances out. It is.
0: Out it's, I, I read an article about it. It's six to one, half a dozen of another. Yeah. Right. By the time, and, by the time you look at the whole from beginning to recycling to reusing, it all balances out.
3: Oh, no, for sure. But in one article I read uh, that was really interesting said that uh, studies have shown that people are more likely to recycle cans than bottles because right. so you you can crush them down and just you know throw fit more in a bag that that, that kind of rings more with.
0: Than, than bottles that you can just throw well that's the way we are when we take the RV out is we always like to take cans and you know we might take bottles here and there but usually they're like 750's uh, mm-hmm. but um, yeah because we, when we're done we crush it and we put it in a little box and then when we get home we put it in the recycle bin so there you are
3: Yes, yeah, just easily. Of course, now if you want to get efficient, the most efficient way to consume beer is now and has always been just just to to use a keg. Yeah. You know, so get a kegerator and, and you'll be fine. That'd be the most efficient way to be. But, uh, but they're also they're made of uh, stainless steel. And getting back to what we we're talking about, with aluminum, the uh, the the feasibility of that is coming into question due to some government policies, and that's something I want to I will talk about at a later date.
0: Yeah, I would like to get into that. At some point in time, I don't think I don't think it's we've had it. It hadn't been going on long enough that we can really make an assessment on it yet. Trends with the economy tend to uh, move at a snail's pace rather than uh, or maybe even a glacial pace rather than uh, moving very quickly at all. No, sure, but I, I did see a story where Coke just raised the prices of their cans. You know, and what? How much of that is an excuse to raise your prices? Right, exactly. You know, exactly. Um, you, you don't know that stuff until it, you know, it comes out in the wash. But of course, in the end, if aluminum is going to cost more, they're going to pass, somebody's going to pay for it. Yeah, they're going to pass it on to the consumer. So that's that's all there is to that. So, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. As they say, the jury is still out on that one, among, sure. among other things. <laughs> That's for sure. That's absolutely right. All right. Tony, thanks so much, man. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Uh, say hi to Aaron and the girls. I'll talk to you soon.
3: It sounds good. Thanks, Alan. All right. Bye-bye.
1: been listening to the bruise traveler follow us on Facebook Twitter and Instagram or check out our blog on website the
0: cheers that's it folks thanks again for listening please find us on Facebook and Instagram at the bruise traveler podcast and on Twitter at the bruise Trav LR. tell your friends about us and please share the podcast wherever you can head on over to iTunes and show us some love with a five-star rating and give us a hug with a glowing review you really want to help? At the website, click on the support button and find out how you can contribute over on our Patreon page. Any and all support is greatly appreciated. The soundtrack to The Bruised Traveler is so generously provided by Gaelic Storm. Check out their music on iTunes or wherever you might get your music. Or visit their website, GaelicStorm.com. And while you're there, check out their tour schedule. I can tell you where they're at this weekend because I'll be there. August 3rd through the 5th, they're at the Iowa Irish Fest in Waterloo. And tickets are still available and you can get those at their website as well. Marketing consultation provided by Mission Digital Marketing. And as I said, I will be in Waterloo, Iowa this weekend, and I don't see you there or at your favorite taproom or a pub. I'll see you right here on the podcast. And remember, take care of each other and take care of the earth. It's everything we've got. And merrily, as always, you are the measure of my dreams, honey. I love you. So goodbye, everybody, and so long for just a while. (laughs)
1: Took light <laughs> a calling a he my a finna love me a love me a love me I'm calling the Who will love me, a Goodbye. Who love me, a Goodbye. Who will love me, a Goodbye. me calling the rua. Who <laughs> will love me, a Goodbye. Who will love <laughs> me, a Goodbye. Who will love me, a wire? Goodbye. me calling
0: us learn to show our friendship for a man when he is alive, and not after he is dead. F. Scott Fitzgerald from his novel, The Great Gatsby. Born September 24, 1896, St. Paul, Minnesota. Died December 21, 1940, Hollywood, Los Angeles, California.